Welcome to the Positively Alive podcast. I am so glad you made it, and I can't wait to introduce you to our distinguished panel of speakers. This is a space where you will be able to learn more about HIV and AIDS, about the latest medical developments and the tremendous progress that has been made over the last couple of years. We will also elaborate on what it means to live with HIV today and how it is possible to live not only a healthy, but also a happy life. I have carefully selected our interviewees. Over the course of the next weeks and months, you will hear the voices, insights and opinions of policymakers, activists, influencers and some of the world's top medical professionals on the topic of HIV and stigma. There will also be the stories of HIV-positive people and their personal experiences on what living with HIV actually means to them. The main purpose of this podcast is to inform, educate and empower, to get the topic out of the taboo zone, to normalize HIV and to stimulate an open conversation. It is also intended to counter ignorance, prejudice, stigma and discrimination that is all too often affecting the most vulnerable people in our societies. This podcast is also a part of a wider online communication campaign about HIV and stigma. If you want to know more, please join our Facebook group at Positively Alive or visit our website at www.positivelyalive.org. Thank you so much for being here and for tuning in. I really hope you will find our content useful and purposeful. Looking forward to see you inside. Hi, everyone. Welcome to yet another Positively Alive podcast episode. Thank you so much for joining us again today. Our guest is a young, very dynamic and passionate politician from the UK. His name is Lloyd Russell Moyle. He was elected to Parliament in the 2017 general election for Brighton, Kemptown. What makes Lloyd very special is that in November 2018, during a House of Commons debate to mark the 30th World AIDS Day, he revealed that he had been diagnosed as HIV positive a decade earlier, saying that he wanted to tackle the stigma still associated with the condition and stating, I have not only survived, I have prospered and any partner I have is safe and protected, making reference later in his speech to having an undetectable viral load, as well as discussing pre-exposure prophylaxis and public health policy. In disclosing his HIV status in a parliamentary speech, he became the first MP to do so in the Chamber of, of the House of Commons and only the second person after Chris Smith to live openly with HIV as a member of parliament in the UK. Lloyd, welcome to the podcast. Welcome, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. In 2017, you became one of eight LGBT members in the general election to be elected. While there has been a tremendous progress in the fields of HIV and AIDS, it still remains one of the issues that disproportionately affects the gay community. Gay men are also earning less. They're more prone to serious mental health issues. And they're also six times more likely to take their own lives. Now, these numbers may be, may be discouraging, but there's also the legal protection that has been won over the years. Now, as a gay man growing up in the UK, could you please elaborate a little bit on your journey? what that's been for you, and do you perceive a big difference today with, let's say, 10 or 15 or 20 years ago? We have definitely made huge strides in the UK. I grew up in a very liberal family that were very supportive about whatever journey I went through and I took throughout my life, and whether that be about my sexuality or whether about be other choices or other things that were about me. And that 
I think has helped me. But the state was very hostile when I grew up. It was illegal for teachers to talk positively about homosexuality in schools. Wow. It was illegal for any local authority to talk positively about homosexuality in terms of public health and health provision. And so it didn't promote safe and stable relationships, safe and stable mental health, because it treated you as if you were wrong and you needed to be condemned. And the law, in fact, said that when local authorities and teachers mentioned it, they had to talk about it in a negative way. And that has changed. That changed dramatically with the abolishing of Section 28. But things can easily reverse. Section 28 only lasted about 15 years, from the 80s to the late 90s. And it was introduced because there was a furore, a backlash, against a very boring book being introduced here in London. Eric and Martin live with Jenny, or Jenny lives with Eric and Martin. And it's a pretty boring book if you read it. A little girl buys some ice cream with her dads, and her dads read the little girl a story at bed, you know. Very standard. Uh, But what's very interesting is in the last few months here in the UK, we have tried to reintroduce some of those materials that are very boring. You know, two penguins looking after an egg or, you know, kind of other stories that are quite benign. And there, in some communities, there's been a backlash and been protests. Thankfully, politically, we have moved the issue on to a stage now where there's no one in Parliament saying that we should really listen to those parents protesting. And most people say that we should insist that these issues are taught. These are issues about safety. Uh, These are issues about understanding who you are, understanding your own sexuality. And yes, these things need to be raised at the very youngest of ages. Mm -hmm. Of course, appropriately. But you need to understand at the very youngest of age, is it appropriate to touch friends and absolutely in certain ways you have to teach that from the very youngest age to keep children safe primarily you know otherwise they're vulnerable to predators and the fact that there's been a pushback because some a very small amount of this wider material is talking about um, lgbt relationships or lgb relationships in particular is extremely worrying and so we must be vigilant. Uh, yeah. But things have moved on. Yeah. Things have moved on in a state that here in Parliament now, not only everyone in the Commons agrees, in the House of Lords, which kept stopping progressive legislation going through, now that wouldn't happen and these things go through straight away. Yeah. You were referring to some parents uh, or some politicians saying that parents would have to have the own, their own decision at, mm-hmm. one, at what, po- what points they would expose their children yeah. to LGBT education. <laughs> it was about the word expose that I was particularly irate about the idea that you kind of are exposed yeah, to something positive negative and exposed to something that could be dangerous and the idea is that actually it's not just about parents deciding parents are the best at loving their children you need no qualification to be a parent absolutely and actually not. that's why it's so important that the state through schooling teaches children if i had had to rely on my mother to teach me about maths and science, I would have not been able to understand anything. She's used to that. She's a fantastic English literature, linguist, those kind of things. So we don't rely on our parents to pass down knowledge to all children, and certain bits of knowledge are vital for the functioning of a society. Treating people equally is one of those things.
Do you think that the rise of right-wing populism all across Europe is a, is a risk for the LGBT community? It clearly is a risk. And I don't think it's just right-wing populism. I think that there is a general right-wing commercialization that is also uh, mm -hmm. very dangerous. And you see it in health settings where people, groups of people are pitted against each other. So we talk about the rollout here in Britain of PrEP. Yes. Costly, but in the end it will save money. Of course And in will. the end it will save lives. And we know, because we're limiting the numbers at the moment in the UK, we know there are people that have contracted HIV that asked for PrEP originally and would have avoided that, uh, that path. But how the government phrases it, or how some people phrase it, is, well, do you want to treat someone with cancer Or do you want to support someone living a promiscuous lifestyle? Mm. Well, they're dangerous currents because you start pitting people against each other. Exactly. I mean, you could then say, well, we shouldn't treat people with cancer if they've smoked. We shouldn't treat people with cancer if they've lived an unhealthy lifestyle. Oh. Look, people live lifestyles. People live how they live. You should treat them as they come and try and reduce harm and reduce costs and prevent diseases an early stage, but there's many ways of doing that. But what you see is this pitting against each other, which kind of moralizes, and it says there are some kind of things that you do that are immoral, and there are other things that you do that are moral. Now, no one says to women, you can't have the morning after pill, or not the, 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 yeah. the, the contraceptive pill, because it might make you more promiscuous. Or, well, people did 30 years ago say that, but we've moved on. And we now need to think about how we move on on some of those discussions on LGBT. And that's why HIV is quite interesting, because whilst it isn't wrapped up only to the LGBT community, the stigmas that are sometimes associated yeah. with it are. And that's why also you see some of this reluctance in terms of health policy. Is there any specific plans or strategies that you have to strengthen the voice of the LGBT community so their voice keeps being heard in the future? Well, we have a very good parliament here. We've got one of the gayest parliaments in the world, gay white men particularly, uh -huh. not, not so many lesbians, no trans people here in parliament. So that is, of course, issues uh, that we need to deal with. And locally, I will continue to support um, my local community. We've had a number of attacks, for example, in the local gay village in Brighton over a number of months. Now, that might just be because people are coming out of nightclubs late at night and they're vulnerable for attack. But when we asked why the police weren't in the area, they said, well, we only have limited resources and we have to focus on the mainstream clubs. Well, that's not necessarily deliberate discrimination. Well, but the problem, like the problem <laughs> is... If you're only thinking about the big mainstream clubs, and they said, well, the number of attacks that you get is no more than the number of attacks that you get outside. The, the, the problem is, of course, it makes communities feel less safe. And so we've been doing a lot of work locally on creating a community safety forum, getting community patrols along that area. So there's a lot that needs to be done at a local level. Yeah. That often bureaucracies will look at the figures They say, oh, well, you've only had five attacks this year. Well, everywhere else has had five attacks as well. And not look at how communities are feeling uh, vulnerable. And, and these are attacks same. on homosexual people? They're attacks of people coming out of gay bars. Okay. I can't tell you whether they're all yeah, yeah, of course, <laughs> homosexual yeah. or not people, like if they're LGBT people or not, or yeah. if they're allies. 
we have come a very long time since the early days of HIV and AIDS mm -hmm. in the 80s. There's been an enormous progress that's been made. Um, it's not a death sentence anymore. We can pretty much live a normal yeah. life. But despite the dizzying progress, uh, the fight against HIV is definitely not mm -hmm. over, right? So what do you consider to be the main pain points and impediments in the UK when it comes to HIV and AIDS? And what are your suggestions to best tackle them? Well, I think we've got two issues in the UK. One is around some of that rollout of PrEP, mm -hmm. that treatment to prevent. The delays of the government doing it is all about moralisation. So they kind of are worried that people will sleep around more if they're on, on this. So they prefer people to live in a state of fear than in a state yeah. of liberation. That's a real problem. And that's a pinch point in terms of not only, as I mentioned before, costs, but actually in terms of getting people's head around what the NHS should provide. But we know where it has been rolled out. Infection rates have really reduced. And we are now seriously starting to be able to talk about getting to very single-figure numbers of new diagnoses yeah. in maybe 30 years or even less, 20 years' time. So some of this is really positive. But we can't make any move on that unless we do really roll out treatment to prevent. Then, of course, the silver bullet of a lot of these things would be some sort of vaccine, some sort of cure, some sort of... I'm not particularly fussy about whether it's a vaccine or whether it's just an absolute cure or, or whatever, but clearly there needs to be a final push on some of that. And then the third final thing is around stigma, because a lot of the associated comorbidities with HIV are actually linked to stigma. It's about people feeling that they can't access certain things. It's about people being excluded from certain things. And so stigma campaigns that are starting all around the world now are so important to start uh, to turn this around. Because let us remember, in the 1980s in Britain and other parts of the world as well, the campaign was all about fear. Yeah. It was about, in Britain, they had huge tombstones, AIDS, you know, kind of don't die of ignorance and boom and scared the heck out of a lot of It's kind of, of people. stayed in our collective memory yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. And possibly, you could argue, at that time, it was the right choice to do. You didn't have any other tools in their toolbox. They didn't have drugs. They didn't have... So you had to just try and make people aware. But the damage that that has done, even though it was the right choice at that time, in the longer, as you say, collective, in the collective memory, means that we now need to do a hard-hitting set of campaigns around destigmatizing this, about making people understand. And generally, I would say, generally, I have a very positive reaction from people, particularly when I talk about myself being undetectable, mm -hmm. meaning untransmittable. And people in certain communities are starting to get that. Yeah. Now, in terms of you, you mentioned the possibility for a vaccine, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I sat down with Peter Piot, which is, who is yeah. the founder of UNAIDS. And for the first time, he told uh, me that he was very hopeful about finding a vaccine in the in a not so distant future. Now, a cure is a different story because it's far more challenging. But do you share his optimism about finding a vaccine? I think there is a likelihood to find some developments that will stop HIV in its tracks. I'm not a biochemist and a, <laughs> a, I'm not a doctor. So I can't tell you whether a vaccine is more likely than a functional cure with certain kinds of medication. I do know 
that the development that we've made only in the last few years in terms of understanding how the disease works better, in terms of understanding how certain people can not get the disease, and we've seen already with the Berlin patient and London patients, uh-huh. that being developed, we've got the oncoming of gene therapies that will not just for HIV, but in the foreseeable future will start to come on board with other We'd be able to treat other diseases, and that provides some avenue of possibility. So I'm very positive that in those avenues there will be a cure. The question is, will HIV be one of those diseases that we plough enough resources and money into to get to that stage, mm. to put an end to that chapter? Or will it be one of those many diseases that has taken us far too long to get rid of, even though the tools are in our hands? If you think of how quickly we got rid of smallpox compared to how slowly we've managed to get rid of certain other diseases like polio, for example, you see that the challenge is immense. And the challenge is about making sure that we put resources in and that we then plow on until the end because there's no point in doing half a job. Well, you're raising an interesting point because at a time that I would expect more money being plowed into uh, mm-hmm. the research into finding a cure because, or a vaccine because we're so close. Donors seem to pull back. How do you explain this? Because this to me seems like a contradiction. I would be doubling down on really getting to the end of the epidemic, which mm-hmm. would be probably one of the, I mean, if not the most uh, important medical breakthrough of the 21st yeah. century, you know? So why is it that donors seem to pull back and why are they not like, uh, what is your message to them? Well, I, I think some people think that it's already in the bag. Some people think so that maybe it's yeah. already going to come and uh-huh. why need to throw more money at it? Well, developing a vaccine or a cure is only the first step. Then you've got to get it out to the people. And so plowing the money in at the end is, is actually really important to make sure it becomes applicable because we can find something in theory, but we then have to develop it in practice. And that requires a lot of resources and money. And if we don't get that right, then we will have done all the thinking, but none of the action. Mm. And apart from the, vac- the, the search for a vaccine, where do you believe the, the other um, money needs to go to in the, in the fight against HIV and AIDS? Today? Well, there needs to be still remaining money in terms of awareness campaigns, awareness around stigma and awareness around feeling comfortable in your own sexuality, in your own being. I don't mean in your sexuality, whether you're gay or bisexual, although that's part of it, but in your own ability to be able to feel comfortable in who you are. Because if you don't, you're more likely to take risks. You're more likely to do things mm-hmm. that are not informed. You're more likely to do things that are dangerous. So those are the areas that we need to really focus on. Some of the, the prep work, some of the treatment to prevent, and some of the areas in terms of uh, awareness. Yeah. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, last year, November, mm-hmm. uh, when you disclosed your yes. HIV-positive status in the House of Commons. You were the first member of Parliament to do so. First in the chamber. We had one member who had... So, Mr. Chris Martin. He, uh, Chris Smith. Uh, Chris Smith, sorry. Chris, Chris Smith, Smith had done it. He had announced in the papers that he was HIV-positive about two months before he was standing down as an MP. So it was a very incredibly brave thing for him to do. 
I'm the first member that will re-stand to see <laughs> I wish to have a career after it. And I'm the first to announce it here in, in the chamber as opposed to an article in the newspapers. The newspapers had found out and they were going to publish and he asked to then put his side of the story. Yeah. What has led to your decision to disclose your status and um, why now? After 10 years well, there were, that you've there been were diagnosed. Three, there were three kind of reasons. I was a relatively new MP, and to some extent, it is easier to do it when you're newer than leave it hanging on you. you know, and I was, I was aware the more years I left, the harder it would be for me. You know, sometimes it's better mm -hmm. just to get these things out. Two, we were really at a crux point with some of the prep rollout. Still, the government is delaying, and, I, uh, and at the same time, the government has cut millions from sexual health provision here in the UK. We've got a growing sexual health e epidemic. And I thought it was an important political moment. I also felt like it was a milestone in terms of my own personal journey. And I wanted to be able to have a weight off my shoulders. And it is a weight off your shoulders, actually. To, no one needs to go around shouting about it. But I tell anyone that's not out or open or relaxed about their status... It's just so much better and easier to be, to be happy about it and yeah. to not, you know, then you, it comes up in conversation naturally, whereas before, whenever it kind of comes up, your mind is always swirling. Shall I say now? Shall I not say now? And it inhibits just Absolutely, kind of who yeah. you are. So, so actually, that was also another reason because yeah. it's important just to be who you are. How did you feel leading up to that moment? Well, I made the decision a few months before, mm -hmm. and I had spoken to the national organisations, such as the Terence Egan's Trust, Beaver, which is the British HIV Association, um, and those other organisations that are, exist in the UK. And I said, this is my intention. Would you help me? And they had helped me. And to some extent, once I'd made the decision, it was all easy flowing until, of course, a few days before, and then your nerves do start to get better <laughs> of you. You start to wonder if oh, you've done the right thing. And I had just recently started a new relationship. And my partner was positive as well. But I hadn't told him that I was going to do it. So the first time he found out was when it was oh, on wow. the TV. And we didn't really speak about it. He just said, what you did there was very good. Thank you. So that was nice. That's amazing. Afterwards. But I felt like if I told people too much, then I would get more nervous. So I felt like I just had to get on with it. And the moment before, the leader of my party came over and wished me luck. And that was the moment I started to feel a bit jittery. You know, it was real. The lips started wavering. But you got through it. And uh, as I said, it is a relief. And the political point is also made that we need to not take our foot off the gas Absolutely. before we get to the finish line. Yeah. How did you feel that people were going to react? And have these reactions been translated in, in, in what you expected? Or was it different? Professionally, people were very positive. Most people who contacted the office were positive as well. There were a few hundred. I mean, we have thousands of people contacting uh -huh. the office. There were a few hundred maybe that were less positive. I'm afraid you get people who are less positive in all works of life. You just have to kind of move on and ignore them. And personally, people were very nice as well. So on all of those fronts, people responded well. And I expected people to respond well. I was a little nervous about how, you know, kind of old friends would react. People that you maybe haven't seen for two or three years, people you're not in contact anymore, you may have known previously. But so far, everyone has been 
extremely positive. Yeah. And working within the UK Parliament, would you say it, HIV is still a taboo topic or would you say people openly discuss it? It's not a taboo topic. That would be wrong to say. It is one of many topics that people are having to think about and talk about and most members don't think about it day to day. There are, of course, some of the detail areas that people don't really end up going into. I'm not sure if that is taboo or if that is just that people don't know. When I first had to talk about undetectable means untransmittable, there were lots of members here in the parliament that said, oh, really? We didn't know that. And so we much had ignorance. To, we had to go through it. And when writing my speech, I had to rewrite it a bit because the speech, you know, you, I write the speech and then it goes to the speech writers in the party and in the parliament. They make sure it. And they just said, you need to rewrite it. You need to repeat this undetectable means unequal, uh, un untransmittable. Yeah that you're on effective treatment, and you need to repeat that three or four times. So the message is clear and like... Unless you do that, the message is not going to get across um, because people won't believe it the first time. Because it's it so sounds, much stubborn resistance well, somehow. Because it sounds so unbelievable, whereas before many people in this parliament, mm. in their 50s and 60s, were raising their families in a period when it was a death sentence, and to suddenly turn around and say everything you knew is different now that it's no longer a death sentence, that actually you can live a relatively normal life, that you can't pass it on sexually if you're on effective treatment, all those kinds of things, is a real learning point for people. And so that has taken a bit longer for people to get their head yeah. around. But I think they have. Yeah, I think they have to. Now, disclosing your status is something very personal. Mm -hmm. And I've also decided to do so, yeah. to go public, Fantastic. because I want to help people on the one hand and be a beacon of hope, mm -hmm. very similar to yours. But at the same time, also because it's such a liberation to be able to free yourself of that burden, right? Now, do you expect with the fact that you've stepped forward that other people are going to follow you in your footsteps? Or do you think that is still going to be a lot of people won't probably doing it and um, it's a very personal journey isn't it well in one sense I hope lots of other people do follow in my footsteps and in another sense I hope that it starts to turn a, a tide where people don't have to follow in my footsteps you know, kind of so it's a contradictory kind of feeling I think that we need a few more people to normalize it to come out as it were with their status But actually where we want to get to, and we, I think in some quarters you can get there quite quickly. Now, the LGBT community actually, in some parts of the LGBT community, I think we are getting very close yeah. uh, to be there, where actually it becomes something that is normalized, you know, kind of, okay, you're on treatment, you're on, it's all okay, fantastic, let's move on. There's no real discussion about it. That's where we want to get for everyone. But in large swathes of the community, in more rural areas, in areas where religion predominates, even here in Britain, there is still a real stigma that people are petrified. And there are people working in this place, researchers, for MPs that I know who are positive, who still fear about telling their families back at home. Yeah. So that's even in Britain. Today, I feel quite amazing. I'm healthier than ever. Yeah. Um, but it's not always, not always been like that, especially when I got infected in South Africa. I was, I had no white blood cells left. I had a vital load of over 4 million per milliliter blood. Right. And I was in quarantine for almost 10 days. Mm -hmm. So for me, that was a shock when they told me I had HIV and I felt literally that my life collapsed. I think I fainted or something. I don't, and it was such a heavy news to receive that I didn't really know how to deal with that. 
And I'm just wondering, uh, when they told you that news, how was that? And how have you been able to, you know, get, come to grips no, with that new reality? I talked a bit about it in my speech in Parliament, that when I went in after a routine test, because I'd actually not been very well with some chest infections and with things that just had kept coming back. And so then you'd gone in for a number of different tests. And then when you get the call back, you, of course, know that something is wrong in this situation because otherwise they would just tell you on the phone or sometimes they even just text you, test all clear, doctor, you know. Whereas if they say, come back, we need to talk to you, you know something has been discovered. Yeah, of course. So already you're stealing yourself for it. But I can remember when you're being told, I can just remember feeling like I wished it was a a huge dream. And that sounds very flippant, but actually really wishing that someone would jump out and this was some horrible uh, candy camera. I can remember thinking, I just wish that this is some trick. <laughs> this is some really horrible new safe sex program yeah. of the government that scares you into never doing anything again. Of course it wasn't, but yeah. what your mind is trying to find any escape course, route, yeah. any way that this could be rationalised out. It also feels at the same time that you have been kind of, the wind has been taken out of you completely. So uh, similar to you kind yeah. of saying you fainted. So all of that emotion happens uh, kind of at once. And it takes a little while to get through it. And I remember ringing a flatmate of mine up whose brother had HIV and so we talked about through it and we met in the local park and slowly you tell people and that process of telling people individually is extremely difficult as well wow. because they go through and I'm sure you yeah, absolutely, experience yeah. the same thing they go through a form of trauma in that that's a shock for them as well yeah and that sometimes can make it work harder for you you know kind of of course you're then having to manage their shock as well as still cope for it yourself. But I've also realized the way you actually tell people, mm -hmm. like if I'm positive now about the fact that I'm positive, yeah. and that's in the way I feel when transmitting a message makes a huge difference. Of course. Because if when you're sad, then you make people feel like, oh, this yeah. is not working, this is really bad, so... Yeah. Yeah. But it took me eight years to come to grips with the fact that I was going to live with HIV my entire mm -hmm. life. It was only after, um, I mean, I didn't, I didn't really know what I was thinking, but I thought I was losing myself in alcohol and in drugs, thinking somehow that the virus would disappear miraculously, which it didn't, obviously. Mm -hmm. And it was only after a trip to Santiago de Compostela in 2016, mm -hmm. that, uh, 2017, that I realized that I had actually never really taken responsibility of my own life. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that, for me, HIV has put the spotlight on certain things of my life that I did not want to look at. And what HIV has done during those eight years, for me, it became an excuse behind which I started to hide because everything that went wrong in my life, it was HIV. Mm. And the reason why I mentioned this is because I believe that self-stigma Mm. is a huge... It's sometimes bigger than exactly, external stigma. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And I'm not saying that everybody who's HIV positive, you know, has deals with self-stigma, but I definitely did. Uh, did. And I, I've always said that we cannot expect society to destigmatize us when we keep stigmatizing mm -hmm. ourselves. What is your viewpoint on that? Have you had to deal with self-stigma? And I think you, we all deal with a bit of self 
the stigma. And that's often the thing that holds us back. It's often the thing that holds us back talking about it. It's often the thing that holds us back from acting in kind of uh, sensible and rational kind of ways in, in some respects. If I go to the Lunch Positive Club on Fridays in my constituency where HIV-positive people will have lunch all together and there's about sometimes 20 people, sometimes 100 people will turn up. Wow. If you speak to them, a lot of the issues is around self-stigma, around the difficulty about feeling that you can do things now and you don't have to self-censor yourself. And that is one of the things that we need to change because adherence to medication, adherence to um, living a positive outlook, as you put it, yeah. actually suddenly can make your life completely different. Completely different. Yeah. I have a last question for you. Yeah, what is on. your overall message to people living with HIV on the one hand, and then on the other hand, to those people that are still stigmatizing or discriminating against people living with HIV? Well, if you're still discriminating against people, if you're still fearful about HIV, then I would say just it is not helpful for anyone. It is not helpful for you to have a fear around people with HIV because they can't harm you. And actually the best way of controlling and um, uh, HIV is to be open about it, is to encourage people to take effective treatment, to not hide about it. And that is how you will keep you and your family safe, if that's what you're afraid of. And if you're afraid for other reasons, well, then probably just get over yourself. You know, kind <laughs> of. Um, and for people who are living with HIV, if you're not out about it, I would say, and you can disclose to people safely, I would say do it. It is... It is good. It is good to do. It is good for your self-esteem. It is good for your person. And if you can't, then I would say know that there are hundreds and thousands of other men and women out there who are in a similar situation to you and that you will survive, you will get on mm. if you think positively and if you take the right courses of action, you will live as healthily and happily and you can be anything you want to be. Lloyd, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. So yes, a huge thank you to Lloyd Russell Moyle for coming on this podcast and for sharing his views with our audience today. I have learned so much, not only about the LGBT community in the UK, but also about how you can live a healthy and happy life as a person living with HIV. Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and that you learned something. If you haven't done so already, please join our Positively Alive Facebook group, specifically set up for this global campaign. It is a place where we raise awareness about HIV and educate people to counter prejudice, taboo and stigma. Whether you are HIV positive or not, our growing community is for everyone interested in learning more about the topic and to share positive and uplifting messages. Check also the Positively Alive YouTube channel where we upload a reduced video version of this podcast interview with the most important messages. I would also love it if you review this podcast and share your thoughts across social media. Let people know that you subscribed to the Positively Alive podcast. The more it gets shared, the more people we will reach and that is ultimately the intention of this podcast. You can tag me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn and Twitter. And let me know what you have learned from this. I am so looking forward to share with you our next episode. 
I also take this opportunity to reiterate and underline the importance of your personal financial contributions to this campaign. Never before in history have we been so close to a vaccine for HIV. Strangely enough, however, we see the national and international donor community pulling back, thinking that everything is in the pocket already. It is not yet in the pocket. We cannot afford a funding crisis right now, not when we are this close to ending the epidemic. A society without HIV where our children can be vaccinated against the virus, how cool would that be? And how much money this would save us as a society? So from a place of humility and love, please be generous with your donations. You can find the donation link in the text area of this podcast, on our Facebook page, on all our other social media channels, and on our website, www.positivelyalive.org. I count on you, and so does the world. Thank you so much.